0: Obviously, that was a lengthy reading from uh, Numbers 22, verse 1, all the way through to Numbers 25, verse 9, and over the next couple of weeks, we'll probably get into a little bit more detail about some of the different oracles and whatnot, but tonight, I'm going to try to just provide a basic overview of this entire Balaam narrative, which comprises more than three chapters. And... This morning in our Revelation series, I had all the answers, and this evening, I have none. <laughs> in all seriousness, there, there is much in this narrative that is confusing. For example, God says, rise and go with them in Numbers 22 and verse 20, but then we read just two verses later that God's anger was kindled because he went, and then Balaam's donkey talks to him. And Balaam just answers his donkey rationally like you would answer a friend, which I'll be frank, seems odd to me. (laughs) I'll try to provide some suggestions toward resolving these difficulties, but as we will see these are actually not the main points of the passage. I'm going to break down the entire narrative into two points. First, a character sketch of Balaam, including his eventual demise. And secondly, God's purpose to bless his people. So with all that in mind, let's jump right into a character sketch of Balaam. And to begin with, as we're in a less clear passage, I'm going to apply a hermeneutical principle that we learned or refreshed our memories about this morning, which is taking more clear passages and letting them shine light onto less clear passages there are things we know about balaam from other scriptures for example second peter chapter 2 and verse 15 says this forsaking the right way they have gone astray they have followed the way of balaam the son of beor listen who loved gain from wrongdoing In 2 Peter 16, which follows right on the heels there, it says, But was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Alright? There is a madness to Balaam's actions here. In Numbers 31, verse 16, we read that it was Balaam who advised the Midianite women to seduce the Israelite men. These, on Balaam's advice, caused the people to act treacherously against the Lord in the incidents of Peor, and so the plague came upon the congregation of the Lord. So the Balaam narrative doesn't end with the end of 24. After Balaam pronounces these four oracles, he doesn't actually exit the story. He's still involved. It's not mentioned in 25, but it was his idea. The Israelites whoring after the Midianite women in the beginning of 25 was Balaam's idea. We know that from Numbers 31, 16. Jude 1, 11 and Revelation 2.14 pick up on these shortcomings. It's not exactly clear what Jude and Revelation are referring to, but they both talk about the error of Balaam. Could be gain from wrongdoing, or it could be some kind of sexual immorality and syncretism, which was basically his advice to get the people of Israel off track. Eventually, in Numbers 31.8, We read that Balaam was killed by the Israelites at the command of God. Numbers 31 and verse 7 says, They warned against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain, Evi, Rechem, Zer, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. And they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. So at God's sanction, Balaam is put to death. Now in this section of text, Numbers 22, one to 25, nine, there's a few more things that we see about Balaam. In Numbers 22.18, look at what he calls Yahweh. Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of Yahweh my God to do less or more. Now, when we put together the fact that the New Testament tells us that he loved gain from wrongdoing, it seems that there was certainly a measure of pretense here in that he's like, Look, even if you paid me all the gold and silver in your storehouse, I just couldn't do it. Right? He, there's the pretense of righteousness and right motives. First of all, and he calls the Lord the Lord my God. In Numbers 22, verses 12 and 13, he is not forthright with Balak's servants about God's forbidding to curse Israel. Look what God says in Numbers 22 12. You shall not go with them, you shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. Pretty straightforward. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, go to your own land for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So you see, he says rightly and truthfully that the Lord has refused to let me go with you. But he leaves out that last part about the Lord has forbidden me to curse these people. Which leaves the door open then for Balak to say, well, he didn't say that he can't curse these people. He just said right now he can't come with. So Balak tries again, right? So, let me explain what I think basically happens in this narrative as best as we can piece it together. Including, in passing, trying to deal with those two difficult issues I mentioned at the beginning. This is what I think goes on. Balak comes to Balaam, well, he's, rather, he sends his servants to Balaam, who was known as a seer. And even extra-biblical literature has mention of Balaam as being basically... Um, Someone who was sort of like, a, almost like a, like a shaman. Someone who was like a go-between with the other realm. There's extra biblical literature from the ancient Near East at this time. Mentioning Balaam as somebody who sort of deals with the gods. Alright, so Balaam has this reputation here. Balak Bala sends Balaam this message that he wants Balaam to come and curse Israel for him. Now, I think that Balaam sees an opportunity here to get some money. He basically would like to go with these people, and so he says, well, wait here, let me see what the Lord says. The Lord comes back, the Lord says, no, you can't go with them and you can't curse these people. Like, Like I said, he leaves the door open. He goes and says, sorry, I can't come with you. The Lord said, I can't. But he doesn't mention anything about not cursing, which leaves the door open for Balak to ask again, And this time, instead of just saying, no, look, guys, I already told you. He says, just wait here again. And he goes and he asks the Lord again. All right, now this time, God comes to Balaam at night in Numbers 22.20 and says, if the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. I think this is a concession rather than a command. I think that this is also, moreover, God giving over Balaam to the stubbornness of his own heart. We read in Romans uh, chapter 1 that God gave wicked, sinful people over to their evil desires. And he, he did not restrain them. I think that this is basically what's happening here in this passage. Which is why it makes sense, two verses later, that God's anger was kindled because he went. It's not like when God gave people over to their wicked desires in Romans 1, that now he was okay with their wicked desires. It means he allowed them to engage in that which their evil hearts wanted to do, but yet he's still angry about it and still judges them for it. I think likewise that's what's happening here in this passage. Balaam is sort of secretly hoping that at some point the Lord's going to change his mind, And he's going to be able to curse the people of Israel and get some money from Balaam. And the more that he resists, you know how a negotiation goes. When someone wants you to do something and they offer you a price to do it and you say, no, sorry, I can't, then what often happens? They come back with a bigger price. Right? So I think Balaam is sort of hoping that the longer this goes on, the prize money is building, so to speak, and at some point he might have the opportunity to collect. I think that's what's going on here. This is his love of gain from wrongdoing. And this is the madness going against the clear, plain as day word of God. You shall not go with these people. You shall not curse them. This is the madness that the donkey is uh, trying to restrain. In the, in the words of Peter the Apostle. Well, as it goes on, Balak takes him from place to place hoping that, well, if he can't curse him on that mountain, maybe if he goes up this mountain, he can curse him. Which obviously in our Christian worldview doesn't make sense. But to them, thinking about, well, whatever spirits may be resisting over here, maybe they won't be present over here. Or whatever auras are manifesting or whatever, you know? The aligning of the energies and so on and so forth. If you go to a different mountain... Maybe it'll be a different result. And you're actually going to be able to curse these people. So Balak basically takes him around and around. Balaam's hoping the whole time that he's going to be able to curse these people. But the Lord constantly overrules. And in the end, Balak's upset. And, can't, and Balaam, Balaam is also upset because he can't collect. So having not collected from the king of Moab, now he goes to the Midianites trying to figure out some way that he can line his pockets and so he comes up with this idea to advise them to send out some beautiful women to lure the Israelites into the syncretistic worship of Baal of Peor and then the Israelites fall from the trap and the Lord sends a plague among them in the end Balaam is roundly condemned by the rest of scripture as being an ungodly man and is put to death at the command of the Lord I think that's basically what is going on here in this passage. Oh, I told you I would answer the donkey question. Why Balaam just talks normally with his donkey? I don't know. <laughs> One commentator said if he's used to dealing with the various, uh, various spirits and whatnot, as sort of like a shamanistic, otherworldly guy, he may be actually used to speaking to strange looking creatures and spirits and perhaps even in the form of animals, so he may actually just not have found it strange that his donkey talk, but frankly, at the end of the day, I don't know. (laughs) It's weird that he has a normal conversation with a donkey. (laughs) Anyway, moving on. There's point one, done. Character sketch of Bela, all right? And that gives us kind of some idea of what's happening here in this passage. Though there may be still Some that we are uncertain about with respect to Balaam and his heart motives and exactly what's going on. That's really not the main emphasis of this extended narrative anyway. The main emphasis of this extended narrative is God's purpose to bless His people. As I said last week, the narrative in Numbers up to this point, which we've been basically unpacking over the last several months... The narrative in Numbers has been focused on the failures of the Israelites, including the failures of Miriam, Aaron, and even Moses himself. But the narrative has begun to shift away from the failures of the people toward an emphasis on the faithfulness of God in doing good to the Israelites and giving them the land that He had promised to their forefathers to give them. The narrative has made it abundantly clear by now that the Israelites have not earned or merited anything. Anything. But because of the faithfulness of God to do what He has promised the Israelites, these people become an almost invincible and uniformly successful people From this point forward in the narrative, basically all the way to the time of the Judges. And this is all simply because God is blessing them by sheer grace. Let's look at a few passages which make it clear that this is to be our central takeaway of this Bala narrative. Firstly, Deuteronomy 23 verses 3 to 5. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. But the Lord your God the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. That's the theological interpretation that Deuteronomy gives us of what happens in the passage we read tonight. Later on, Nehemiah refers back to this narrative in verses 1 and 2 of uh, Nehemiah chapter 13 on that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water but hired Balaam against them to curse them yet our God turned the curse into a blessing Or Joshua 24 and verse 19, or sorry, verse 9 and 10. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. Look, the way the rest of the scripture understands these three chapters that I just read to you is that God had simply purposed to overrule the evil plans of Bala and Bala and to bless the undeserving people of Israel There was nothing that they did to earn God's protection here to earn God's blessing here. There was nothing they did to be undeserving of a curse In fact, at the beginning of 25, we see just how susceptible they were to being lured astray into the worship of false gods. These were not a deserving people. And so this is nothing other than God's faithfulness to Abram on full display. Remember what He promised Abram in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Look, God had promised to Abraham to bless his offspring. God had promised to Abram to bless his offspring. Did they deserve it? No. Were they even as faithful as Abram? No. And even Abram himself was not actually all that faithful, as we remember from our exposition of Genesis. Abram didn't deserve it. His descendants deserved it even less. But what had God promised? I will bless your descendants. So guess what? What the Lord says He's going to do. The Lord is going to do. Well, what if a pagan king wants to curse him? Never mind that. God said, I will bless. Well, what if there's a shaman who deals in the spirit realm and he wants to curse the people of Israel? God said, I will bless. That's what's going on in this passage. It's not, it's not rocket science here. God's purpose is to bless an undeserving people prevail. Not because the people merit anything or deserve anything. Or have earned anything. But simply because God is a promise keeping God. What God said He will do. That's what He's going to do. If you wonder how God's going to act next week. Read your Bible. He's going to do what He's promised to do. That's who God's going to be. Yesterday, today, and forever. Listen. God promised that he would take a bunch of undeserving sinners for his own and lead them through a wilderness until he got them into a promised land. And the Red Sea wasn't gonna be any obstacle. And the lack of water and the lack of bread wasn't gonna be any obstacle. And Balaam the Shaman wasn't gonna be any obstacle. And Balak wasn't gonna be any obstacle. Sihon and Og, the giant king, wasn't gonna be any obstacle. God had simply purposed to take these undeserving people, lead them through the wilderness, and bless them by bringing them into the promised land. That's what God had promised Abram he would do. But there was two levels to what God had promised Abram that he would do. There was his earthly seed, which is the people of Israel that we're reading about and God promised to make them into a nation and to bring them into the promised land. But there is a deeper fulfillment of these concepts of nation and exodus and wilderness and promised land, which is fulfilled, as Galatians tells us, to the people of faith. There is a sense in which I, though I am not a biological descendant of Abraham, and and you, most of you in this room, are not biological descendants of Abraham, if not all of us. And yet, if you are Christ's, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. This is what Galatians tells us. There is this second level, this second type of fulfillment in which there is a more ultimate nation made of Abram's seed than simply the biological children of Israel. There is a greater exodus than simply bringing the people of Israel up out of Egypt. There is a greater pilgrimage through a more great and terrifying wilderness. And there is a better promised land. And there is a greater mediator than Moses. God has purposed, as He purposed then, to take an undeserving people for Himself and lead them through a wilderness until He planted them in the promised land come hell or high water. God has promised to do that in this day and age. He has taken a people for His own And he has brought us out of our bondage and he is leading us through a great and terrifying wilderness. And he will not let anything stand in his way until he has done all that he has promised to do for us and plants us in the promised land. We don't deserve it. Just like these people of old didn't deserve it. But you know why it's going to get done? Because he who promised is faithful. He will surely do. The narrative of the Old Testament and the narrative of the New Testament are basically the same. Are, there's a lot of typology in the Old that points forward to realities that we only understand fully in the New. The narrative is that God blesses His people not because we deserve it, but because He is faithful to do what He promised. And that there is an exodus consummating with arrival in a promised land. As the old hymn says, the Lord has promised good to me. His word, my hope, secures. We have great hope. Even though we are not under the old covenant, even though we are not the old covenant people of Israel, we have great hope in Christ as He leads us on a new exodus and a new pilgrimage towards a new promised land. And this hope in Christ is sure and steady. Not because we are sure and steady, but because Christ is sure and steady. I'm not a sailor I'm not even a fisherman. I've tried. And I love it. But I'm not good at it. I understand that on really large ships, underneath there is ballast, which basically keeps the ship from capsizing. There's weight that pulls the ship essentially straight down so that when the waves come up, it doesn't go all the way over because this weight underneath keeps it from rocking back and forth look what is our ballast of assurance that we deserve that we are faithful that we don't grumble too much along the way that we are better than the people of Israel of old That we are so very much different is this our ballast of assurance No the song that we're about to sing says that Calvary Calvary is our ballast of assurance not the mirror where do we see good grounds for assurance that we will be blessed not in the mirror at Calvary God has promised to me and to you to do good to the undeserving just as He promised to Abram to do good to the undeserving. He who promised is faithful. We see that at Calvary. He will surely do it.